Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. If you like what you hear today, visit my Fertile Ground Communications page on Patreon and find out how you can support my work. I promise that there are some goodies involved as well. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I'm fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. This is my third week of my Healing Herself series, as I share stories from four women who have survived body issues, sexual assault, shame, and trauma. Each of them has healed herself. Today, I'm honored to host Leah Carey, who tried to be a, quote, good girl for decades before she woke up sexually in her early 40s and learned how to love herself. Now she is a sex coach and educator, in addition to hosting the Good Girls Talk About Sex podcast. I posted photos and further details about Leah on my website, including links to her website and podcast. I want to ask your forgiveness because I had some sound recording issues on this episode. Just try to ignore them. Thank you for your patience. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome Leah. Thank you so much for coming on to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, you're very welcome. So let's start at the very beginning. Why don't you tell us about your life beginnings? What was your childhood like? (laughs) How long do you have? Um, (laughs) I did not have the leave it to beaver (laughs) perfect childhood. I guess I should start by saying I did have a mother and a father in the home with me. So to some people that would look like leave it to beaver, but my father was an alcoholic And he was emotionally abusive to both me and my mom, probably more to my mom than to me, but I didn't know that because she protected me from a lot. The emotional abuse that I experienced, well, I guess I didn't really understand what it was. And in fact, I didn't understand it was an abusive situation until much later in life. So I would say I was probably in my early to mid 30s before I understood that what had been happening in our home was really not okay. And it wasn't until my early 40s that I put a name on it when I watched the former president be elected and having said things like grab him by the pussy. And I went into complete emotional lockdown when he was inaugurated. And I couldn't really understand what was going on with me. I didn't understand. I mean, I knew a lot of women who were having a very strong response Uh to him. I knew myself well enough. I, you know, I've done a lot of introspective work over the years. I didn't understand why I was having such a severe and prolonged response to him. It was around that time that people started sharing articles about narcissistic behavior. And I read them and I saw the story of my childhood laid out in front of me. My father has been dead for about 20 years, so I'm certainly not going to try to diagnose him posthumously. But I can say that the behaviors that are described in those articles line up pretty point by point 
with the behaviors I experienced as a child in our home. You know, the saying things, even being on record saying things, and then when they come up again, being like, I never said that. Or telling me something and then telling me that he had never said it or telling me that I didn't actually feel the way that I felt. Lots and lots of gaslighting, you know, just straight up saying that things had never happened that I knew for sure had happened. And to the point that I started to question myself. I mean, I've gone through the great majority of my life thinking that I'm crazy, that I can't trust my own memories and instincts about things that I have seen, heard, experienced. On top of all of that, I am pretty certain this was all part of the same behavior, you know, group of behaviors. He was really sexually inappropriate with me. He talked to me sexually about my body starting when I was about 11 or 12, including telling me that I was starting to get fat and ugly and that no one would ever be attracted to me and talking to me about my mom's body and their sex life and how unhappy he was with it. And speaking to other women who were not my mother sexually in front of me. There's this stew of just complete confusion around what is appropriate and what's not. These things feel bad, but they're also normal in my home. So maybe I'm the crazy one. He started telling me that he was going to lock me in my room until I was 30 and that he would break the kneecaps of any boy who showed interest in me. So like there was this complete confusion around, am I so desirable that you have to lock me away or am I completely fat and ugly and undesirable? And there was no way to make any logical sense of those two messages in the same place. And so what I did was just completely shut down my sexuality. I didn't date. I didn't flirt. I didn't anything. Internally, I was still like totally boy crazy. (laughs) And eventually at some point I figured out I was girl crazy too. But but on the outside, you never, never would have known because I was just like an iceberg on the outside. So yeah, that's the story of my childhood. (laughs) Did your mother stay with him the whole time or did she ever... Mm, This is a whole other story. My mom was my biggest protector and my best friend, but I didn't know it because my father worked so hard to turn us against each other. He would tell me, you have to be careful or you're going to grow up to look like your mother or to be like your mother. And like, what faster way is there for him to make me hate all of us? Me, because I'm becoming this thing that apparently is not okay. Him because he's saying this awful thing and her because she is clearly not okay. There was an incident when I was about 12 years old. It was the only time he ever put his hands on me. It was late at night. He was very drunk. He pushed me down on a bed and put his hands on me. And I told her the next day and she was upset. She was angry, but There was nothing like, I'm going to leave him. I'm taking you. We're going somewhere else. And I, for years, was really, really angry and upset at her for not, quote unquote, protecting me better. Like in my head, I thought, why would she not pack us up and we would go somewhere else? Get me away from him. 
what I did not know until I was in my early 30s, after my dad had died. She held all of these stories until after he died. She told me that when I was a baby and she first began to realize how unstable it was going to be raising a child with an alcoholic, and she started thinking about what it would look like to leave. And he said to her, if you ever leave me, I will take Leah and you will never see her again. And so she was acting on the best information she had at the time, (sighs) which was that leaving him was not an option. And so she would do anything she could to be the buffer between us. And ultimately what she did, which was fucking brilliant, was she convinced him that it was his idea to send me to boarding school. Ah. Because if it was her idea, it would not have happened. Uh But if it was his idea, then of course he would move heaven and earth to make it happen. Uh And I went to boarding school and therefore he and I did not have to live in the same house. How old were you when you went off to boarding school? Uh, I was a freshman in high school. So 14, Uh I think. Do you remember feeling excited about that or nervous? I was terrified. Yeah. I was so terrified. And again, I was very like, I was in the middle of all of those like codependent behaviors, child of an alcoholic behaviors, which uh-huh. are so tied into the family, feeling like if I left, then everybody else would fall apart. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I was terrified to leave. I only went to a school that was about a half an hour away. So I still came home every weekend. Uh-huh. And at some point, my father started traveling really regularly. So I didn't see him that often anyway. But then I remember when I was a senior in high school, I had seen therapists on and off. My mom kept trying to get me to go to a therapist throughout Mm -hmm. my high school years, but I started regularly seeing one my senior year in high school. And I remember talking to her. At that point, my parents had separated, although they hadn't said that they were separated because, you know, putting things like that into words was too big and scary for our family. Um, (laughs) so, So they were living in different cities, had completely separate homes. But I remember saying to my therapist that that maybe I shouldn't go to college because what will my mother do without me? You know, uh, like that is such a child of an alcoholic yes, statement. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. And so when your father died, how did you feel when he died? Were you mm. relieved or were you sad or? It was awful. So it was very unexpected. He was out of town working and he had a massive stroke in his hotel room one night. So there was no opportunity to process it. Or, you know, there was no lead up time to be like, oh, this is going to happen. He's going to go. So, no, I was really angry at him for leaving before he and I had come to some type of healing is the uh, right word, but you uh-huh. know, we had come to some sort of detente. Oh, this is such a crazy story. Oh my God. My life has been like a soap opera. <laughs> My father had many jobs through his life, but at the time of his death, he was working as a private investigator and he was investigating white collar crime of Boston mob families. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And at the time of his death, he was on the Whitey Bulger case, which (laughs) was a really big deal on the East Coast. I don't know if people in other parts of the country know. I've heard of him. I've heard of him. Okay. So my dad was on the Whitey Bulger case. And he was in Florida on this case uh, doing, I don't know what, and he died. 
he dies overnight in his hotel room. And so the person who identified his body was the FBI agent who he was working with down there. Wow. (laughs) And then there was an autopsy because in Florida, if you die under unexpected circumstances, there's an automatic autopsy. So my stepmother at the time calls me and she informs me that he has died and that she's going to pick up the ashes. And I was like, oh, so you're not getting there till after he's cremated. And she said, no. So what I know is that no one who I know has seen his body except an FBI agent. And my father certainly has the means to fake his own death if he Ah. chose to. At his memorial service, two of his colleagues come up to me separately and say, well, there's also the scads of people who came up to me and were like, you're so lucky that he was your father. Because oh he was gosh. he was like, a, he was one of those high functioning, very charming people uh-huh. who everybody loved, but then he came home and it was a total <sighs> nightmare. But then the, his two colleagues came up to me and said, I don't think he's actually dead. I think he went under deep cover on the Whitey Bulger case. <laughs> oh my gosh. So in answer to your question, how did I feel when my father died? I spent five years years waiting for my dad to come back. Oh, that must have been torturous, especially after your relationship with him. It was awful. It took me five years to finally get up the courage to order the autopsy photos, which thank Uh, God they existed. Wow. Because that was the only way that I could confirm for myself that it actually was him. And so your mother was eventually able to divorce him. They did get divorced. He was actually Uh, married twice more after he divorced. Oh, wow. He was married four times in total. Very interesting. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about the inauguration and the pre stuff and your trauma about that, I had a lot of trauma around the Me Too era as well as a sexual assault survivor. And it was traumatic. Those five years yeah. felt like ongoing trauma, didn't they? It really did. And I got to the point where I just, anytime he was speaking, I would turn off the radio or the television. I stopped watching news. The only coverage that I would listen to was like the NPR politics show Mm -hmm. where I knew that they would give me like two sentences of his voice and then do commentary. That was the only thing I could stomach. Right after the election, I actually would turn it off whenever I heard his voice. And it was probably like six months before I could even allow myself to hear his voice. Inauguration day this year, I was getting ready for bed and I my husband's in the bedroom and he's playing some sort of a, probably an NPR thing or something, you know, like a, a summary of the day. And I hear the voice mm. <laughs> and I had this little shit fit like, oh my God, I don't <laughs> want to hear that voice ever again. Yeah. <laughs> turn that off, turn that off. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And oh. I remember when, you know, when they finally called the election, which was like five days after the 2020 election, mm-hmm. finally called it for Biden. And a day or two later, I recorded a video to put up on Facebook. And I think I put it on Instagram as well saying, okay, like, it's great that we voted him out. But I want you to know what it looks like having grown up with these behaviors. I want you to know what it looks like in this time.
time between today and inauguration, things are going to get bad uh-huh. because this is a person who has no ability to be rejected, who has just been rejected in the most profound way. I said, like, this is probably going to get really scary. And in the moment that I said it, I was like, well, that's a little bit over the top. Leah. <laughs> Maybe you don't need to say that. But I left it in. And then I rewatched it after oh the Capitol riots. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, I think about all of the young people who saw those messages of the narcissism and the gaslighting and the, and the sexism. And, you know, just like, it's going to take us a while to heal from that. I think. Yeah, for sure. So, so you mentioned that you, at one point in your life, you were really depressed and you had to use a free clinic to get healthcare for your depression. At what point did that happen in your life? So the five years after my dad died were a really serious black hole for me. Over the course of those five years, I got deeper and deeper. You know, at first I was upset. I was certainly in grief and I was, I was definitely depressed, but I was still highly functional. And I've been, you know, at various points of chronic depression my whole life and have always been pretty high functioning in that. But then as those five years went by, I sunk further and further till the point when I was 2005 or 2006, somewhere in there, that I got to the point where I was basically non-functional. I held down a part-time job that was like 15 hours a week, but even that, it was hard for me to get out of bed. I had some projects I was working on outside of, of my own stuff, and that could get me involved and invested for a little bit, but then I would bottom out again. And it was when I started having some suicidal ideations, Mm -hmm. which I had never had before. And thank God have never had again. But that was when I was like, I need to get myself some help. Like this is no longer okay. I finally recognized that it was not okay. I had a friend who I was talking to a lot during that time. And at some point I admitted to her something I had never said to anybody before, which was, well, you know, people talk about hitting rock bottom. And then once they hit rock bottom, things get better. And so if I can just wait this out until I hit rock bottom, then things will get better. Like I had this very clear idea in my head that it was like a silver bullet. Like once you hit that moment, then everything got better. And you didn't actually have to do any work. Just magic. Totally. (laughs) Totally. And she said to me, Leah, if this is not your rock bottom, I don't want to see what is. And I was like, oh, like I had no frame of reference for that, you know? And I don't know really what rock bottom would have been, except that for me, it really was that day that I thought, where's the tallest building I can throw myself off of? Mm -hmm. That was the moment that got my attention. I didn't have insurance because I didn't really have a job. I had no money. I was living at home with my mother because I was so non-functional. The only option I had was to go to a free health clinic, but I wasn't sure who I was supposed to be. Was I supposed to be myself or was I supposed to perform being poor in order to be okay and acceptable at the free health clinic, which was a really confusing thing. But the outcome of that was that I got the medication that I needed. And, you know, I still have periods of depressive experience periodically, but I have been basically 
more or less stable for the last, whatever that is, 15 years. Well, given what you went through as a child, I mean, the constant messages that you were not enough and that you were fat and ugly and no one would ever love you. I mean, you know, just watching you on stage, you seem joyful and ebullient and high energy. And so you're amazing. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, partially that is me being high functioning. Yes. Because my guess is that you could have seen me in, you know, 2004 at the height of my depression and it wouldn't have looked exactly the same. You're right. I inhabit myself and my body much differently now than I did then, but I still could put on a show. You you had a theater degree. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I watched, as I mentioned to you before, before we started recording, I watched some of your stories on YouTube. And the first one that I think I watched was about sensation and about getting involved in sex positive Portland. So can you walk us through that a little bit? What happened that made you kind of take that turn that corner about how you felt about your body? Yeah. So my mom passed away in 2015. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. It was hard. You know, she and I had done a lot of work to heal our relationship. And she really was my best friend. I got to be her companion through the cancer journey for two years. But when she passed away, I was kind of left in this limbo because I had been living in New Hampshire in order to be near her. And without her there, there was no reason for me to stay. So I decided that I was going to sell her house and take that money and take a a solo road trip around the United States. I didn't have any plan whatsoever. I gave myself up to a year and I didn't have, you know, I had a map, obviously, but I didn't have anything mapped out. Um, You know, from one day or one week to the next, I didn't know where I was going to go next. I just let myself sort of follow my nose. Early on in that trip, I started to get really honest with myself about the fact that I had never had any kind of really pleasurable sexual sensation. I had had a few orgasms with partners, but they generally were not pleasant. I would refer to them as my genital sneezes. that's what it felt like. It felt like there was just like this quaking that happened, but I didn't have this rush of endorphins that anybody else talked about. And when somebody touched me sexually, I, I didn't have all those feelings that people talk about. And so I had heard of this concept called tantric massage. And I was really intrigued by it because what I had read was that it could help women who don't have sensation to begin to access that sensation again. And I was like, sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) I was also terrified that if I pursued this, I would get into the studio of somebody who practices tantric massage and they would look at me and be like, I'm sorry, this is not for you. This is only for the thin and pretty girls. (laughs) Because that's very much how sexuality is depicted in our culture. Unless you're, you know, five foot 10 skinny is all get out and blonde. There's really not a depiction of you anywhere. So on my trip, I was in New York City. I found someone who does tantric massage. I contacted her. I want to be super clear. This is really important to me for people to understand that people who do this work are sex workers. So I'm about to tell you a story of profound sexual healing. And when you hear the word sex worker, that's not what you think about. But this 
person is a sex worker. There are many, many, many sex workers in the world who, no matter what your concept of them is, are doing really profoundly healing work, even if it's not on exactly the same level. Just the fact that they're touching people who don't get touch is profoundly healing. So that's my little soapbox moment about mm-hmm. sex workers. I make an appointment with her. She took a full sexual history from me while we were on the phone to sort of make sure that she understood where I was and what I was working on. And she asked me what I wanted. She asked me if I wanted just external touch or internal massage as well. Internal meaning like, yes, what you're thinking of, inserting (laughs) her fingers. And I told her, I just want to feel better. Whatever it takes for you to make me feel better. (laughs) Those things. So I got to the place that she was working from. I was terrified. Oh, I imagine. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I thought if I walked in, maybe the world would end. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Or, like, you know, God would smite me or something. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> she was lovely. There was no smiting. <laughs> She also did not tell me that I did not belong there. She was so kind and generous and lovely. You know, we went through the massage and I can talk more about it. I know people always have lots of questions, but for me, the most profound part of it was after the touching was done, we sat down to talk for a little bit and she was able to say to me, really the words that changed things for me and set me on a new path, which was, you're not broken. Because I had spent so much time thinking that maybe my father was so abusive because there was something inherently wrong with me. Maybe I don't feel sensation because there's something inherently wrong with me. You know, I had so many maybes that ended in maybe there's something wrong inherently with me. And She looked at me and she said, you're not broken. I am very familiar. And she can say this, right? Because she has worked with so many people and seen so many people go through this process. She's like, I can tell you that I watched you go through all of the typical signs of arousal, and and sort of going over that edge. I did, in fact, have an orgasm. I was not expecting to. It was not particularly pleasant for Mm. me, but I did. And so she was able to say, I watched you go through all of those stages in exactly the way that we would expect to see them. There is nothing wrong with your body and your nervous system and your sexual response, but there's something that's going on that's blocking you from feeling that pleasure. Yeah, to say that you had an orgasm, that it wasn't pleasant, that's not usually said about orgasms. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that how often I say that and other women are like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Mm-hmm. I thought that it was just me being weird or broken. Yeah. Mm. So that sent me on a completely new course because she basically sent me away with a homework exercise, which was start playing with sensation. See Uh what you can feel. See how you can feel it. And so I'm on this road trip around the country. I don't know anybody. Nobody knows me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to prove anything to anybody or mm-hmm. be the good girl anymore. Yeah, because your parents have both passed away. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm an only child. I, you know, oh I'm gosh. basically out there in the world. I mean, I say that I did have friends who were keeping track. Like I, every time I had a date with somebody, I would let them know where I was. And, uh-huh. you know, okay. I did all the safety protocols. But what I was able to do was basically travel around the country 
and start exploring my own edges around, am I allowed to be a sexual person? Am I allowed to show my body to somebody without being ashamed? Am I allowed to experience somebody touching my body without being ashamed, but also without having to perform for them and do what they expect in order for them to get pleasure? So I traveled around the country having all of these incredible experiences. You know, I had my first threesome. (laughs) In fact, I booked a trip and went to a sex resort in Jamaica for five days by myself. I mean, I did all the things and some of it was very titillating and some of it was not at all. But what I discovered through that was that I'm allowed to be sexual. And that was not a thing that I ever knew was available to me before. In one of the videos that I saw, you talked about how you used to cry with your boyfriend when you were younger, and then about meeting this guy on Craigslist and how he opened you up to... So at that point, was that while you were on your road trip when he kind of opened you up to, all right, uh uh-huh. Yeah, so it's an amazing story, honestly. Uh, I had gotten to Portland, Oregon, which is where I ended up settling, but I didn't know that yet. And I was doing all of this through Craigslist personals, which is no longer available, but at the time it was. So I met this guy on Craigslist And, oh God, I was so nervous because I had met people and I had always put some specific boundaries in place. I said, I want to touch, I want to be touched, but I'm not ready for intercourse. So for me, the definition of sex is not just intercourse. It's any sexual touching that has the potential to end in an orgasm. So I would say that I was having sex with a lot of people around the country, but I had not had intercourse with anybody while I was on the road. And so I met this guy and my immediate sense about him was that he was somebody who could be really great at helping a woman to experience herself. There was just something about his energy that said to me, this might be a thing. And I found out later that he actually had done some sex work, which totally made sense to me. I mean, it sounds like he kind of did sex work with you in a way. He totally did. Yeah. yeah, Without payment being involved, but Mm -hmm. absolutely. Well, he walks in the door and he's like, so what do you want? And I was like, I don't know. I'm so scared. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I really have no idea. Can we just take this kind of slow? And he said, absolutely, we are going at your pace. This is your experience. And I had never had any man say that to me before. Wow, yeah. Like sex had always been on somebody else's schedule and mm-hmm. filling somebody else's needs. Not because necessarily they were bad guys, although some of them were, um, <laughs> but because I didn't know that anything else was possible. I didn't know that I was allowed to want things and to put my pleasure first. I didn't know that there was anything else other than performing for other people. So he says to me, this is all about you. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Like that makes no sense to me. (laughs) He kept probing me a little bit. And finally I said, okay, here's what I want. And this was a thing that I had been wanting to say to somebody for decades. And in my mind, in full honesty, this was a thing that I thought was actually kind of kinky because it was so outside the norm. So I thought if somebody wanted to play in the kink realm, because I didn't really understand what kink was. If somebody wanted said to me, oh, I want to get kind of kinky, what are your fantasies? This is the fantasy that I would have told them. I want you to touch me without any expectation of reciprocation. 
I don't want to touch you until I absolutely can't stand it anymore, until I am so excited to touch you that I can't stop myself. So that's just basic sex. Yeah. <laughs> like, right, 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 right. Yeah. You thought this was really outrageous. <laughs> I thought this yeah. was so ridiculous that I couldn't say it to anybody. Oh, oh my God. But so I said funny. it to him and he was like, yes, absolutely. So he started touching me and I was so unused to being the center of attention that after a few minutes, I started to get self-conscious and overwhelmed. And I just sort of like started to turn away from him and he immediately caught on and he was like, what's going on? I said, I'm overwhelmed. Can we stop for a minute? And in my previous experience, can we take a breather always meant this is over. We're not doing anything more Uh, because they would get bent out of shape and uh be emasculated or whatever. But I said, can we take a break? And he said, yes, absolutely. And he rolled over and he like scooped me up and spooned me while I, you know, my breathing calmed down and I started to feel safe again. And it took a lot of courage to say, okay, I'm ready. Because I thought that he was going to be like, no, 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 we're done. I said, okay, I'm ready again. And he started touching me again. And the same rules were still in place. You know, we didn't Uh have to suddenly switch it all up to, okay, now it's Leah's turn. Uh And we went through the cycle several times where he would touch me for a few minutes. I would get overwhelmed. Sometimes I would start to cry. He would hold me. I would calm down. And then we'd go back to touching. And then at some point, he said to me, would it be okay with you if I touch myself while looking at you? And I was like, I'm sorry, that's not part of my vocabulary. <laughs> no, I am fat and ugly and undesirable. Why in the world would you want to do that? Oh, uh-huh. And he's like, you're so sexy. You're oh. so beautiful. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. So he did. And after a couple of minutes, I started to get squeamish again. And he's like, do you want me to stop? And I was like, well, that's not fair to you. And he said, what do you mean? That's not fair to me. I was like, well, you want to do this thing and it's not requiring anything of me, but just to lay here. So it's not fair to ask you to stop. And he looked at me and he said, honey, that's what consent means. And I about lost my fucking uh-huh. mind. <laughs> what an incredible gift to encounter this person. How did I get to my early 40s and not know what consent is? I know. Is? Oh, I know. <laughs> like, I what? know. I Except know. that then I started telling this story to my friends and they were like, oh my God, that's what consent means? <laughs> I know. I know. Exactly. <laughs> so none of us learned this, right, which is right, shocking and horrifying. Right. Yeah. So many women have stories. I'm really lucky I don't have those stories, but Mm -hmm. I'm a survivor of sexual assault. So I guess I have that story. But in my positive male relationships, I don't have that story. I'm lucky that way. So fascinating journey. You on your website, you say that you no longer believe that good girls are quiet and docile and take care of everyone else's needs before their own. As you learned from that Craigslist ad, you say that I believe that taking control of our sexuality, speaking up for our needs and talking honestly about what really matters is the essence of goodness, kindness, and integrity. That's the kind of good girl I want to be. So let's talk about your podcast and the kind of work that you do now. Yes, please. (laughs) Because my podcast is honestly my favorite thing in the whole world. (laughs) Yes, yes. I can relate to that. (laughs) So my podcast is called Good Girls Talk About Sex. 
And people hear that. And sometimes they're like, well, I can't be on it because I'm not a good girl. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's not the way I mean good girls. Right. <laughs> I interview women about their sex lives, which is pretty much the most fun conversation you can have ever. <laughs> we start at their early childhood and talk about what the messages were they got in their growing up home and when did they discover masturbation and, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes into building us up or building our base as a sexual person that we honestly never talk about. We only start talking about sex at the moment that somebody has their first kiss or has their first intercourse. But all of that learning about who we are as a sexual being starts so much earlier. So we start there and then, yeah, we basically do a life history of them and their sexuality. Honestly, this podcast started because like I said, I have, I was telling my girlfriends these stories as they were happening. I have a group of really close girlfriends. We're part of a writer's group together. And so I was writing my experiences on this journey as I was having them. And when I started, like when I had that experience with the tantric massage, I was like, y'all, this is going to be TMI. You might not want to read this. Like, tell me you don't ever want to see anything like this again. If that's the case, I will never tell you anymore. And they're like, oh my God, tell us more. <laughs> tell us all the things. <laughs> yes. They literally would like be begging for more details. And I was like, oh, we want to have these conversations, but nobody's having them. And then the more I told my stories, the more they started telling me their stories in return. Sometimes publicly within the group, sometimes by private message, but it became very clear to me how much all of us needed to share. And so that was the idea for the podcast came out of those conversations with my online group of girlfriends. And it has turned into, I just started my third year and I just, I love these conversations Uh. so much. I want for people to hear their own story spoken back to them so that they know they're not broken, they're not wrong, they're not alone. I so much want for people to know that they're not alone because I felt so alone for so much of my life. And so you also have built a business out of doing this. Is that right? Yeah. So I now do coaching primarily with women, sometimes with couples. And when I say women, I mean people sort of across the gender spectrum, most specifically people who were raised as little girls, because that's the mindset that I was raised in, though I also do include trans women in that. And I guess I should clarify, that includes trans men and Uh non-binary people. Uh I work with people to really look at the messages that they received about themselves as a sexual being and deconstruct the parts of that that really make no friggin' sense, but are part of our cultural conversation around what is a good girl and how do you be a, you know, the good partner and that kind of stuff so that they can start having a sex life that's really fully them. You know, sometimes I'll get people come to me and be like, I don't really want to be a sex pot. Is that what I have? (laughs) Like, am I going to walk out working with you being a sex pot? I'm like, no, I'm not a sex pot. (laughs) I'm no interest in that. I Uh want to help you find your most authentic sexual self Uh and then learn how to talk about it so that 
you can communicate it to your partner or partners and bring them on board so that you're really getting what it is you desire. You know, I thought it was interesting on one of your stories on your website, you were wearing this beautiful dress, this like full skirt, you just looked gorgeous. And you said at the previous time that you had been at that storytelling venue, you had worn jeans and you're like, you know, you were just talking about how your the way that you viewed your body had changed in that period. Yeah. Wearing a short skirt is still a real stretch for me because part of my father's messaging to me was that my legs were so ugly that no one would ever want me. Yeah. Such important work that you're doing. So uh, so when people share their stories on your podcast, is it usually anonymous or do they? Yes. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's- right. Definitely mostly anonymous. Every once in a while, I'll get somebody who, in fact, I'm super excited because I don't know how far in advance you record, but as we're recording this, the episode that will come out in a week is with a woman who was featured on the Netflix series, Deaf You. Alexa. And it's the first time I've ever been able to have somebody on the podcast who's deaf. So we have some really interesting conversations about if you're using your hands to talk, but also to touch, how does that change the sexual experience? Wow. And how how are you recording it? Yeah, we had an interpreter. Wow. You know, that reminds me of this play that I saw once at Portland Center Stage. And I've never forgotten it because it was about, it was like a fantasy sci-fi sort of kind of. This woman had this unexplained illness, some kind of a virus where she kept losing things. Like she would lose her sense of taste. So then she lose her, it was not COVID. (laughs) She would, you know, lose her ability to walk because she kept losing things. Right. And nobody could figure out what was going wrong with her. But at the very end, she lost her sense of sight and her and her hearing and everything. And she was in a relationship with, I think her, her husband. And the only thing that she had left was sex. That was the only way she could relate to oh him at gosh. all. I know it's a really beautiful play. I'll have to look it up and see if I can find it and tell yeah. you about it, send it to you. I mean, it just made such an impression on me, that story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would love to see. Yeah. Something. Yeah. That sounds amazing. <laughs> but to go back to your original question, yes, almost everyone who appears on the show is doing it anonymously. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow. Well, the one episode that I really, that really stuck out for me was the one that you did with the trans man. Mm. And I also interviewed somebody who's trans, but what was so lovely about yours was he really got down to the nitty gritty. He talked mm-hmm. very openly about his surgery and about, about sex and all of those questions that, you know, doing it anonymously probably gives you so much more freedom. Yes, absolutely. You know, that was a really important conversation. To me, it was really important to create a safe space for him so that he could go there. Now, obviously, I want to create a safe space for everyone who I talk to. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's primary for me. But that particular conversation, asking a trans person about their genitals and about their sexual behaviors and activities is pretty verboten territory. Yes. As well it should be. Yes. And I appreciated the fact that you kept saying that on your podcast. It's like, this is not something that you should ever do. Yeah. (laughs) And 
And the reason I was able to was because I had his prior permission. Yes, exactly. And he trusted you. Yes. That was beautiful. Are there other episodes that kind of stand out for you in your mind? I don't know. For me, I often do it. I do an interview. I was like, oh, this is going to be my favorite one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. They're all my favorites. (laughs) I know. I know. But but, I mean, are there a couple of examples you can share of conversations that kind of blew you away? Yeah, for sure. There's one with a woman named Michelle. I believe the the title of it is A Throbbing in My Nether Regions, (laughs) 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 which was just an awesome quote. She is so funny. But she also, you know, she has a story of basically the shape of her story is she grew up kind of knowing she was gay. She embraced her lesbian identity, became very invested in it. And then not too long before she contacted me, she discovered that she was attracted to a guy. And oh my God, what does that do to her sense of self? (laughs) It was an amazing conversation. And she was just so upfront. Yeah. I love the conversations where people are just like, here's my story. Let me lay it out for you and just put everything out on the table. Those are the best. Yeah. So I'm 56. And so it seems like in my time, my adulthood, people have evolved about talking about bisexuality. Because I know a number of people who have gone back and forth, who have been Mm -hmm. like, we're in a relationship with a woman for many, many years, and then ended up getting married to a guy. I know at least a couple, at least two or three women who have done that. I don't remember them talking about being bisexual. I remember them talking, you know, it was more like I had my lesbian phase. (laughs) You know know what I mean? And, (laughs) And also with my children, I mean, I've got teenagers and they often talk about, oh yeah, so and so's bi. I mean, it just seems much more talked about, even though it's probably still very misunderstood, but it seems more acceptable in many ways. I mean, have you found that as well? I'm really glad you brought this up because so I grew up in a home as difficult as my home was. One thing that my parents did really, really well was just acceptance of people. Really? Wow. My parents, they had lots of gay friends. So I knew there was no question for me that whether I was gay or straight, I would be completely welcome. But there was absolutely no role model for me that bisexual was even a thing. So when I was 24, when I finally admitted to myself, I'd been having crushes on girls for as long as I can remember, (laughs) but I always like put them in a sort of separate category because I was into boys. And I think it was around 23 that I finally admitted to myself, I'm actually into women. And so in my head, what that meant was I was a lesbian because I had no idea that there was anything in between. (laughs) Right. You didn't make a choice. Right. Right. And (laughs) so then I spent like, I don't know, a few years trying to convince myself that I was a lesbian, even. Oh, my God, this was crazy. Even during a time when I had a two year relationship with a man. (laughs) I was still telling myself that I was a lesbian. You're just taking a little break. (laughs) <laughs> right? right? Yeah. I was, it was so weird. Yeah. I mean, but it would, it just was, it was the information I had available at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then when I finally got the word for it, it felt like, oh yeah, I'm not crazy. And I remember I was living in Boston at the time and I went to some meetings that were at like the women's resource center for 
lesbians. And I remember one of the other women in the group one day who was super attractive and oh my gosh, I wish I had said something to her. But anyway, (laughs) she said, I feel like even in this group, I have to come out as bisexual because the lesbian community Now, this is 20 years ago, and things have changed some in some communities. But at that time, bisexual women were not at all welcomed into the lesbian community because, and I can understand why to some, because so many lesbians had had experiences with women who were basically, quote unquote, going through their lesbian phase, even though Uh that's a stupid term. They got involved with, quote unquote, straight women who then went back to men and they got totally heartbroken. Uh. The thing was, I'm never going to get involved with a woman who sleeps with men. And so it was very hard for me to figure out how to have an experience with women, even though I desperately wanted it for so many years. I think that if I were coming up now, probably I would have heard the term pansexual first, and Uh I would have wrapped my mind around that. I've never been involved with someone who is trans or non-binary, but I have been attracted to people who are trans and non-binary. So I think that probably puts me in pansexual territory. I got really attached to the word bisexual because that was the first word I heard. And now there's all this stuff about, well, you can't be bisexual because then that's transphobic. Really? I have not heard that. Oh, yeah. That's a big thing. It means that you wouldn't be attracted to someone who's trans. Because people who hear that word make the assumption that when you say bi, you mean either men or women. Okay, it's binary. I get it. Yeah. The way that I have come to define it is I am attracted to two kinds of people, people who have bodies like mine and people who don't have bodies like mine. Yeah, that makes sense to me. We're, you know, trying hard to be non-binary and that, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really thought of that before. Interesting. So you think that that word is going to go away? I don't know if it'll go away. Now, I mean, maybe it will. Maybe uh-huh. as this, you know, current generation becomes the ones who take over the, you know, the media conglomerates and all of that, maybe the word bisexual will go away. There will always be people of our generation who hold on to it. Yeah, ultimately, I think that probably teenagers now are going to hold on to the word pansexual. Yeah. I mean, because if you think about somebody who's non-binary, who may be in a relationship with a woman, if you say bisexual, then that would eliminate them, right? Yeah. I mean, if that's how you identify that word as being either men or women. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. yeah. Thank you for that education. That's, That's very interesting. So what sex and intimacy advice do you have for people during the pandemic? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, good question. It's very different now than it was almost a year ago when we first went into this. Yes. Um, Then I was like, let's figure out ways to keep things fun. And now I'm (laughs) like, you know what, let's just be honest. If you are 24-7 with your significant other and maybe you have kids running around and you're in your sweatpants all the time and oh my God, you're sick of each other. Let's just call a thing a thing. You may not be feeling sexually interested at all and that's okay. What I really have come down to at this point is let's reduce the harm that we're doing with Uh our partners right now. So, you know, if you are having sex and you're enjoying it, fantastic. Great. I'm so excited for you. <laughs> I can tell you that e- that as a person in the human sexuality field, I have had very little sex this year. <laughs> right. With my monogamous live-in partner uh-huh. because, you know, yeah, the world because, is the world is heavy. Very heavy. That's yes. such a good way to say it. Yeah. Yes. 
And so that has just, in fact, I have a podcast episode coming out tomorrow that is titled My Pandemic Sex Life, where I talk pretty explicit detail about what has happened over this last year and the ways that our sex life has been affected. Okay. So the point here is, and I should also say this, some people respond to stress with their libido tanking and just being not at all interested in sex. Some people's stress response is to have a higher libido. I am afraid that those people may be shamed for Mm. like, everything is awful. How come you want sex? Like that's just gross and pervy and it's not. And do you think that that's more likely to be a male thing that if I, I don't know, really for me, I mean, I feel like if, if I'm depressed, if I really like the world is heavy, I am not interested in sex. Every single person is different. Uh-huh. Every person has a different makeup of the hormones in their body. Mm-hmm. Every person has a different psychosocial, you know, whatever all those words are, makeup. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Every person is different. Some women have higher libidos based on stress and some women have lower libidos. Same with men, same with every other gender. You can't make assumptions based on gender. So yeah, it's important to know that if you are a person who has a higher libido right now, there's nothing wrong with you. And if your partner is someone who has a a higher libido right now that you're not matching, there's nothing wrong with them, but there's nothing wrong with you either. This is just the stress response. And we Uh have been in a profoundly stressful period for almost a year now. Our nervous systems were not built to withstand this ongoing profound stress. So that's why I think it's important to let's step back from like, let's make our sex life fun and flirty. Yes, right. No. <laughs> I mean, it's not like right. a home improvement project. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the first place we need to start is with harm reduction, uh-huh. which is Let's do as little harm to each other as possible so that if you're having resentments with each other, that's the thing that needs to get dealt with. Because if you're resenting each other, sex is not going to be fun. Right. Sex is not going to be connected unless you're people who enjoy angry sex, but <laughs> right. I, that's not a realm that I know much about. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah, if you're having resentments with each other, if you're having issues outside of the bedroom those will filter into the bedroom. So rather than trying to make your sex life all sparkly and shiny, let's deal with the stuff that's happening outside the bedroom. Because here's the thing, at some point, this pandemic will be over and we will go back out into the world, whatever that may look like. But if we haven't handled those emotional issues in our relationship, they will follow us into post-pandemic life. And that will then affect your sex life when you are starting to feel like, oh, maybe the world isn't on fire and we can have sex again. And what about people who are not in relationships? What are they doing Mm -hmm. nowadays? Is there still internet dating? And I'm so far away from that realm. I have no idea. And what about sex work? I mean, what are sex workers doing right now? Oh, it's all so hard. So I can only talk about the sex workers who I know personally. I can't talk about them at large. I know that the sex workers who I am friends with have largely turned to camming, to webcamming, or I'm friends with some dancers, some strippers, Mm -hmm. and they're doing virtual shows, virtual strip shows. It's just not the same for them. I know they're not bringing in the same kind of money as they were. So that's hard. Also, what's hard is that there are so many people who use sex workers as their avenue for touch. And 
let me see how I can do this in a cliff notes version, because this is a whole other topic. You know, as Brene Brown tells us, our brains are wired for connection. That includes physical connection. We know that if a baby isn't held enough, it affects the development of their brains. The synapses in their brains don't connect properly, and they go into a condition called failure to thrive. We can see something similar in adults if we look at the incarcerated population and people who've been in solitary confinement for long periods of time, they will often begin to to develop something that looks like mental illness. Now, obviously, there are probably lots of other factors there, but one of them that can't be ignored is the fact that they haven't had any physical touch at all for extended periods of time. So this touch hunger, this desire for touch is not just like a fruity thing like, oh, you should be stronger. Like who needs that anyway? No, this is like an actual chemical brain neurological thing that we need touch. So then put us in a pandemic where people who are not in a touch partnership are told that they're not supposed to have any touch for, you know, the sake of their health and the health of everyone else in the, you know, on the globe right. for over a year. That's rough. Uh-huh. That's, I mean, it's more than rough. There can be some significant cognitive decline that happens. Yes. I think we've seen a big increase in the number of pet adoptions. You know, mm-hmm. people may not totally consciously understand why that is, but part of that is that they are filling their touch need with yeah. another living being. There are other options, none of which are going to be as good. I'm I'm sorry that I can't offer you a great replacement for human touch, but you know, hugging a body pillow while calling somebody and having them tell you how much they love you and how they appreciate you, just getting some warm words of reassurance while you're hugging a body pillow, that can start to stimulate some of those chemical. That's a good idea. There's no two ways about it. This is hard for everyone. Mm -hmm. And single people will look at partnered people and be like, oh my God, you're so lucky. I wish that I could have that. And partnered people will look at single people and be like, oh my God, I wish my partner weren't here 24 (laughs) seven. I wish you had it so much easier. Like this Mm -hmm. is hard for everybody. Mm, Yes. I know in some of the Facebook groups that I'm on, a lot of married couples are, a lot of people are having a really hard time right now because they are like, like you said, 24 seven. Yeah. In a little lighter question, yes. have you read or watched anything recently that has inspired you? Oh my gosh. Well, we've we've been watching a lot of TV. Yes, I know. We have too. <laughs> so much TV. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my God. You know what I watched the other night was the Hulu piece in and of it's in and of itself, I think it's called. Derek Delgadio. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, if you about? have not seen it, I'm not going to tell oh, you that's the one anything you, about I it. I remember you wrote that on Facebook. Yes. Okay. I'm <laughs> literally not going to tell you okay. anything. Okay. I didn't know anything okay. going into it. And I'm so glad I didn't. It was such a profound experience. Okay, I'll put it on my list. Don't read anything about it. Don't watch that's any previews. It's very hard for me, Leah, because I am. <laughs> One of, well, my, one of my strengths is input and I'm like, <laughs> I'm a researcher. So we just finished Lovecraft Country. Uh-huh. 
And of course, after every episode, I go to the internet and I want to find out what all the symbolism is. And you know, <laughs> so it's really hard for me, but I will try not to look I, it up. I think <laughs> that you sh- maybe if you have 90 minutes tonight, just watch it tonight. <laughs> okay. I have my book group tonight, but yeah, okay. I will but try seriously. to put it on my list. It is so good. It is okay. good. mind-blowingly good. Great. I will definitely yeah. watch it. Good. <laughs> okay. So think back to yourself at age 21. What would you say to her now? Oh, oh, honey. Yes. It's okay. <laughs> it's going to get better. But really, what would I say to her? The problem is that she wouldn't have been able to hear any of the things that I can say to her now. Uh-huh. She was so deep in her dysfunction and she believed it so completely that she would not have been able to hear any of the things that I could say to her now about there are people who want to love you. I mean, that's what I would have said to her. There are people who want to love you, but I don't think she could have taken that in. Well, I'm thinking back on when you lost your mom, I'll bet you just really wish you had your mom here now to be able to talk to her about the evolution you've gone through in the last five years. I miss her every, every day. Yeah. But on the other hand, none of this would have happened. If she were still alive, I would still be in New Hampshire. Yes, that's true. What do you think about Portland? Do you like it? Oh, I love it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it definitely feels like a good place for me to be. So my final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? Yes, but... I have been pretty profoundly impacted by the stories of Harry Potter. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes, but. yes. Yes, but. I am still trying to make peace for myself with how I can engage with those stories and the great meaning that they have for me while also recognizing that one of the most successful authors in the world is doing really tangible harm to people I love by using her platform to espouse anti-transgender messages. That is really hard for me, and I, I don't yet know how to deal with it. Yes. Yeah. After that, the interview I recorded with Harris Eddie Hill, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that one uh, trans person that I, that I interviewed and we talked about that topic mm-hmm. and they had a really great way of approaching that. And I guess it's been, you know, obviously hotly debated in the trans community and the way that Harris decided to approach it was still keep Harry Potter alive in your heart. Yeah. Keep those adventures, you know, prominent in your memories and the way that you view the world and try not to give JK Rowling any more money. Yeah. Of course, then I realized that my 14-year-old is really obsessed with Lego. And so I did buy him Harry Potter Lego for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I thought, oh my God, I'm just doing what <laughs> Exactly. Do, you know, it's I mean, very hard. I desperately, when when theater comes back, I so want to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how to do that in good conscience. Yeah, I know. I know. And I am all about voting with my dollars all about that. Like I was telling my friend the other day, I bought some Girl Scout cookies from, you know, uh, the daughter of a friend. And and then I read somebody else posted online that 
some Girl Scout troop is boycotting the cookie sales because it has palm oil and they have palm oil. And they're like, uh-huh. oh my God, I bought, you know, so I have a hard <laughs> time. And so of course I think, oh my gosh, I bought Lego and it's very difficult for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not somebody who participates in cancel culture. I don't think that's particularly useful. And I recognize that like with the stage show, the stage is my first love. Like, mm-hmm. like you said, I, you know, I trained in theater. I worked in, in professional theater for a while. So I recognize that there's this whole production. There, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are making their living based on this work. And I want to support that. But how do I do it without yeah. $5 of my ticket going to her? I know. I know. And that's why I felt I really was anxious to talk to a trans person about it because I felt like I needed guidance. I needed to know how the trans community was dealing with this. So that was very helpful for me. You know, obviously, we know that no trans person represents the entire community. (laughs) I was just going to say that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So, but they, you know, Harris said that it has been discussed a lot. And a lot of people have been kind of viewing it this way, that they're not giving up on Harry Potter entirely. I I know that you and I talked a little bit on Messenger about Harry Potter and the sacred text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I actually put in the blog post that accompanies that episode, I put a blurb from Casper and Vanessa about the transphobia. Mm-hmm. And they did an excellent job of handling it as well. So I don't know. Does JK really get money when they do Harry Potter and the Sacred Text? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay, um, good. Because I think they actually addressed that at one point. They said that if there were money going to her, that they would have stopped. Oh, okay, good, good, good. But I love that podcast and I was a faithful listener. Mm-hmm. But this summer I had to stop listening to it, not because of Casper and Vanessa. Right. Um, but because I couldn't engage with the material on that level. Yeah, I know. Right the term cancel culture, I kind of think about a little bit like the term PC. I don't like to use the term because it's kind of the rights term in a way, you know, so I try not to use that term, although I understand what you're getting at. But there is part of me like I will not see a Woody Allen movie, you know, Mm -hmm. I I guess it's kind of the purest in me, you know, Mm -hmm. if I feel like somebody does something harmful, it's hard for me to support their work. And I know that 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 can extend a very long way. People will say, well, what about, you know, so-and-so, you know, some ancient composer or something (laughs) like, well, or, you know, my faith background is that I am a Lutheran. And I don't know how much you know about Lutherans or Martin Luther, but Martin Luther was, you know, an anti-Semite. Really? Yes. Or he was actually not anti-Semitic. He was anti-Jewish. That's the way that he classified it, that he was not. (laughs) Well, that's fascinating. (laughs) There is a difference. I did a paper on this in college. Basically, he claimed he was not discriminatory or prejudiced against Jewish people because of their race, but because of their beliefs. That's how he just, that's how he <laughs> different. Like, you know, like, okay, you're missing words here. But my point is that I'm not saying we cancel everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just, a, it, there's some gray area there. And I think maybe, I don't know. I mean, can we bless, as, as Casper and Vanessa would say, can we bless JK Rowling, even though she's being horrible right now? <laughs> I don't know. You know? Yeah. 
I mean, I feel like there's room to bless everybody uh-huh. for sure. And, you know, like I remember it was one of the first two or three episodes of that show that they blessed because they do a blessing at the end of every episode. Every yes. Show. Thank you for explaining that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it must have been the very first episode. They blessed Aunt Petunia. Oh, yeah. I was really taken by that because mm-hmm. I had never allowed the grace mm. for that character to see her as anything other than horrible. I thought that was really important because part of my journey has been learning how to forgive my father and that I could not begin to see myself as whole until I started to forgive my father. And that's a much longer story. But the point is that when they blame Last Aunt Petunia, I was like, oh, right. This is a thing that is important and necessary. But then they got a lot of pushback. Oh, did they? Yeah. From people saying, how can you bless the abuser? That completely negates the experience of the abused. And when I say that I don't participate in cancel culture, that's part of what I'm saying, I still see the people who have done wrong as people, people who have been harmed. Usually, I think there are very few cases of people who are legitimate psychopaths. Uh With nothing that got them there, you mean? Right. There is the vast majority of people who go on to be abusers in some form have been profoundly hurt. And, Uh you know, I can see that in my father. My father, his mother wanted a girl. And so she spent the first five years of his life treating him like a little girl, dressing him as a girl, calling him by a girl's name, doing all the girl things while he was dying inside because he was a boy. And there were lots of other signs of abuse in that home. But how do you look at a person who was brought up in a home where he had absolutely no role model for good parenting and then expect him with no other training whatsoever to become a good parent, that shit doesn't happen. The distinction is that just because I have found some acceptance and forgiveness, acceptance of what was, that this is just what happened, and forgiveness for the fact that it happened does not mean that anything that happened was okay. That's a really important distinction. And so that's like, when I look back at that thing about Aunt Petunia, that Vanessa got so much pushback from people saying that that's dismissing the abuse. I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the only way forward in healing is to see the abusers as people who were themselves hurt, because at some point, somebody has to stop the cycle. And as long as we're looking at the abusers as something less than full human beings, that means that we have, it's like we can separate ourselves from it to the point that we don't have to look at our own dysfunction. Well, it can eat you alive too. I interviewed a woman a couple of weeks ago who she's from the UK and she was gang raped when she was 13. And she was able to come to a point after a lot of work, a lot of trauma, PTSD, that she was able to forgive her her rapist. Mm. And yeah, it's amazing. And she viewed it the way, like what, like what you're talking about, that the people that attacked her were broken people. Yeah. There was a reason that they were the way they were. It doesn't make what happened okay. Absolutely. There's nobody out here saying that what happened was okay. Right. 
right. But there is a distinction between the action being not okay and the person being not human. I think it's a good lesson for us thinking about Casper and Vanessa and blessing these people who are difficult. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, it really is. So, okay. So you and I, that's our homework. We're going to try to bless JK Rowling. Okay. Thanks for bringing that back around because yeah, I, I had know, already I blocked it out. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That's our homework, Leah. Okay. So uh, those are all my questions. Is there anything else that you want to say? <laughs> mm, I just want to thank you. This conversation has been amazing. Yeah, really I've loved it. Well, I, I hope that we can meet each other, have coffee or go yes. for a drink one of these days when the Someday. world comes back. Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad you're in Portland and I look forward to becoming friends. Yes, I would love that. I put links to the topics and podcast episodes, Leah and I discussed on my website. In addition to photos and other details, go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Do you know someone with a grit and resilience story who would be great to interview? I'd love to hear from you. Next week's Healing Herself guest is Stephanie Bolastia, a friend of Leah's. Stephanie suffered with eating disorders, including bulimia, binge eating, and orthorexia for over 20 years. After decades of extensive therapy, she created her own formula for healing and made a full recovery, all while raising three kids and working full-time. She started her own business to help others do the same. Now she feels more awake in her 40s than ever before. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.